swings and drives one. Deep right field. Broad looks up. It's out of here. Curry for three. Got it. Struck him out. Now back up to the makes a diving catch in the end zone. Touchdown Giants. You're listening to Just Steven Sports with Steven Cusimano and Justin Lopiccolo. The summer heat is back, so are the hot takes of Just Steven Sports. We are finally back. Steven Cusimano here alongside Justin Lopiccolo, and we spent quite a few weeks off, Justin. Oh yeah, we did, and I'm excited to be back talking baseball. I mean, now it's, it's gotten going, and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of big news talking about the struggling aces and the power bats in the league now. It seems like everyone's hitting home runs. Yeah, you mentioned how bad of a year it's been so far for aces, specifically six former Cy Young Award winners with ERAs over 380. I'll go down the line here and list all the names. Max Scherzer with a 380 ERA, although he did have a 20 strikeout game just a few weeks ago. Zach Greinke, who is now on the Diamondbacks, had an under-2 ERA, led the National League, and for that matter, the entire league in earned run average last year. He has a 429 out in Arizona. Scott Kazmer now on the Dodgers, a 523 ERA. David Price moves over to the Boston Red Sox, 553 ERA. Matt Harvey recovered from Tommy John surgery last year, got a little bit overworked. He now has a 577. Dallas Keuchel on the Astros. Won the Cy Young last year, came out of nowhere to do that, but he is sporting a 5.92 ERA so far this year. Adam Wainwright, also a 5.92. Justin Verlander, 4.50. Sonny Gray, a 6.19 ERA. And Shelby Miller, who the Diamondbacks also acquired, a 6.64 ERA. Nothing that he has been accustomed to his entire career. And Justin, as I look at all these names, it's a lot of former Cy Young award winners in recent years. David Price, Zach Greinke, Corey Kluber, Dallas Keuchel, and... All of them above a four ERA, but you also look at guys who have changed teams like David Price, uh, once again, Zach Greinke, Shelby Miller, and maybe this change in scenery has not done them well, but Justin, if there's one guy on this list that really sticks out to you, and there is a lot for me, who is it for you? Well, I think the one that stands out to me the most is Granky, but to me, I, I kind of saw this coming. I knew him changing ballparks to a, a hitter-friendly chase field was going to have an impact on him, but it's not just at the, uh, it's not just at home. Like it's it's a way too. When he's on the road, he's giving up runs. When he's at home, he's giving up runs. And I think he'll improve as the season goes. But from what I've seen from him so far, although he did have his best outing against the the Cardinals just recently, but. From what I see from him, he's he's going to be inconsistent, and I think paying him you know thirty some million dollars a year wasn't wasn't the right move for the D backs. But I guess they you know they were desperate for pitching. And to be honest, when Greinke first came over to Arizona for all that money, and everyone was freaking out, I knew there would be growing pains because Chase Field is statistically the second best hitters ballpark in the league, and you don't go from all those Cy Young and fantastic years, and especially a, a sub two ERA last year for Greinke, you don't go. Um, from pitching like that to a really good hitter's ballpark and pitch exactly the same, there's going to be growing pains. And I said the same thing for Shelby Miller. Um, and I've been saying, even though their ERAs are still high, I think they're going to figure it out. And we even saw Zach Greinke on Sunday afternoon pitch eight innings, only gave up a run. So it seems like he is starting to figure it out. Shelby Miller has been a little bit better as of lately too, but he, to start the season, was really, really bad. So only time will tell if their struggles end in Arizona. But let's talk about Max Scherzer for a minute because he is probably the most interesting name on this list. He's won the Cy Young two years ago with the Tigers, uh, had a 20-strikeout game, and he has the lowest ERA of every guy that I just named with a 380. Well, Max Scherzer is a, a very weird kind of pitcher because if you look at his stuff or like from what I see, he doesn't have any crazy stuff, but he fools batters into striking out a lot, and it's kind of hit or miss because he gives up the home run ball a lot. Uh, 
he gives the home run ball a lot, and even when he does, he keeps his team in the game because even if it's a three-run shot, that's all he's given up for the whole game. So it kind of comes down to that. But, I mean, like you were saying before, you know, teams are getting better at pitching or the hitting. I mean, we can decide for ourselves, but if you look at it, in 2016, there's three teams with the top ERA in the league. You got the Cubs, the Nationals, and the Mets. Last year, you had teams like the Cardinals, the Pirates, and the Cubs, but their ERA on the year was higher than it is right now. And so these these teams are becoming so dominant when it comes to pitching. I mean, you have these rotations with Lackey, Lester, Arietta. I mean, the Mets have Cinder, Mets have Syndergaard, Harvey when he's at his when he's at his best. Bartolo Colon who can still pitch, Degrom who can pitch. It's like a lot of there's a lot of good pitchers, but like you said about Max Scherzer, it's like there's there's these teams they they pull together a few decent pitchers, and even when Scherzer's ERA is kind of high, the entire team is still keeping it together. Now let's talk about Matt Harvey for a minute, because if you remember last year, he was recovering from Tommy John surgery, had a fantastic season, a sub-3 ERA, pitched deep into the playoffs, in fact, had a very stellar game the night the Mets got eliminated in the World Series, went all the way to the ninth inning, but he was only supposed to pitch 180 innings, and that would have left the Mets shutting him down in September, like what the Nationals did with Steven Strasburg a couple years ago in 2013 when they made the playoffs. But instead, they vowed to keep Harvey on the mound throughout the postseason, 40 or 50 innings over his limit, and everybody was saying that Matt Harvey was defying those so-called Tommy John surgery innings limit caps that a lot of people were really doubting to that point when Matt Harvey was doing well. But now maybe we're starting to see the repercussions of that. We're at a year later, and Matt Harvey now sports a 577 ERA, which is far worse than he's had in his entire career, and there's a large belief amongst Met fans and coaches that it could even be a confidence issue. So, Justin, is it something to do with the Tommy John's fatigue? Is it something to do with confidence? You know, what is wrong with Matt Harvey? Well, I think it might. It kind of depends on the physical aspect of it, but there was an uh, article I saw on ESPN that it kind of tried to describe why all these aces are doing bad, and... On that list that we just showed, uh, not 100% accurate, but at least eight of those pitchers that we just talked about, their velocity is down from last year. And when when your velocity is down, it just slows. I mean, higher velocity usually equals better results. So even if your pitch is not that great, you get higher velocity. It kind of makes up for it because it makes the hitters rush their swing. But for Matt Harvey, his velocity is down, and people are seeing that 93, 94-mile-an-hour fastball, and they're used to seeing that now. If there's more 93-mile-an-hour fastball pitchers in the league, then it's going to be easier to hit a 93-mile-an-hour fastball. But when Harvey had his velocity up to 97, there's only a select maybe 10 or 15 pitchers in the league that can throw that hard. So I think he's becoming one of the more common pitchers while his velocity is down, and I think that's happened with a lot of people. Sonny Gray, his velocity was down exponentially. I mean, there's a lot of these pitchers that are losing velocity for one reason or another, and I think it's all happening at the same time. So... I mean, what do you think? Do you think that it's the hitters getting better or the pitchers getting worse? Well, in terms of hitters, you have their exit velocities going up, which means obviously that they're hitting the balls much harder. And as you mentioned, we have our pitchers with their velocities going down. So you have to think it's the pitchers. And not only that, but in college and throughout the minor leagues, we're seeing kind of a golden age for rookies and uh, young players, how they rise up through the minor leagues so much quicker than they have in years past. And so for that reason, I feel like it's it's a hitter's league now. And when they're young, we're seeing pitchers progress a lot slower than hitters. At least that's what it seems like. So really, at the moment, it just looks like a mixture of both. A lot of really mature hitters coming out of college and out of the minor leagues, while a lot of these pitchers are just losing their velocity. But let's talk about one of those pitchers, Dallas Keuchel, because Dallas Keuchel really burst onto the scene last year for the Astros as a superstar, won the Cy Young last year, but he and, might I mention, the Astros are having a really bad year. A lot of people are picking the Astros as favorites to advance out of the American League into the World Series this year, but at the moment that we're speaking, they only have 17 wins, their second to last in the American League, what has gone wrong for Dallas Keuchel and the Astros as a whole? Well, I think the Astros have a pretty unique problem, and I think they got themselves into this problem without even knowing. I mean, they added Doug Fister, and they have Dallas Keuchel, but 
what people don't realize about that rotation is when you get a full rotation full of guys who throw 90 miles an hour, it's going to be hard. You have these soft tossers, and Keuchel is a sinker ball pitcher. I mean, he has a fastball, and that averages around 90 miles an hour for both. And Doug Fister doesn't throw that hard either. And you have all these guys in their rotation that throw the same. So if you're hitting off Doug Fister one day, you're going to hit off Keuchel the next day because you're seeing almost the exact same speed of these pitches. And they might you know, every pitcher is a little bit different. So for Dallas Keuchel, it's like, if you get the unfortunate opportunity to pitch after Doug Fister, you're almost the same pitcher. I mean, I'm not going to try to put him in the same category, but the way they throw is the same. When you have a guy like Keuchel who needs the hitters to swing and miss, if you just saw, you know, almost a replica of the guy the day before and the same pitch speeds, you're not going to strike out. So the Astros, if you look at their rotation and you look at their average velocity as a rotation, you have all these soft tosses and people are hitting off of it, especially with that short left field wall in Minute Maid Park. So for Keigel, I don't know if it's 100% his fault. I mean, you have to blame him somewhat because he's he's boasting that, you know, 6 ERA. But there's definitely bigger issues at hand with the Astros, I think. Now, of all those pitchers that I just named, which one of them is in the most trouble? Because when you have 11 or 12 aces that are all pitching bad, it gets a little interesting to talk about. We have Dallas Keuchel, who hitters are maybe starting to figure out. You have Matt Harvey, who possibly is seeing the repercussions of overworking himself after rehabbing from Tommy John surgery. Max Scherzer, you have Zach Greinke, who's in a hitter's ballpark now. Which one of these pitchers is in the most trouble? Well, it comes down to two guys for me. I think Sonny Gray and Shelby Miller, and there's two different reasons. One, because uh, Sonny Gray, he's, he's at risk of being sent down. Shelby Miller has been a good pitcher for three years, but it seems like Sonny Gray just like kind of came onto the scene a year or two ago. So he he's at risk of being sent down. And every time he goes out there, it's he threw 90 pitches in two innings the other day. That is that is an insane amount. And they I mean they let him stay in, but for Shelby Miller, like like we said before, they gave up a lot for Shelby Miller too. So if he doesn't perform out there and you know Dansby Swanson performs for the Braves, you kind of think that you wasted all that talent on Shelby Miller. So Shelby Miller and Sonny Gray are in the most trouble then who would you say is best primed for a comeback? I think a lot of the ERA from a pitcher, not all of it, but some of it comes from how much confidence you have in your team. So if I look at that list, the most confident offense I see is the Red Sox and David Price. If you look at David Price's record, it's 6-1. and one. So even though he has a high ERA, he has confidence in his team to score runs for him. So he can just go out there and do what he does and try to get the best ERA he possibly can or give up the least amount of runs, and his team will support him either way. But you get teams like, you know, Sonny Gray and the A's. So if Sonny Gray doesn't hold his team to three or less runs, there's probably a 75% chance you're going to lose. So it's like, it kind of depends on the offense too, but I think David Price has the best chance to make a comeback. Now, obviously, these are the guys who have been really bad to start the year, but let's talk about the guys who have been really good. Starting in the American League, Chris Sale has been literally unbeatable. My friend actually texted me, who's a White Sox fan. He said, what do you call an unbeatable Sale? And joking around, I said $9 because he's 9-0. and But the right answer was Chris because he's literally been unbeatable this year. He's 9-0, a 158 ERA, 62 strikeouts. He pretty much leads every single stat, a 72 whip, just unreal. Um, and right behind him, uh, sporting a 198 ERA on the same team, Jose Quintana, who's also a great pitcher. Felix Hernandez, third in the ERA, 221. Uh, Steven Wright, the knuckleballer from Boston, is fifth with a 252. And you also have Jordan Zimmerman, who went down with an injury just yesterday. And a couple other names back there buried in 10th, Cole Hamels, Masahiro Tanaka, guys like that. So when you look down who has been really good in the American League, who do you think stays good and possibly wins the American League Cy Young? Well, first I'd like to say I don't know where you found a White Sox fan because I have never once met one. No offense to the White Sox. <laughs> but I think out of all those pitchers, Chris Sale has proved that he's the best. And I like names like Danny Salazar and, and Felix Hernandez, but I don't think those guys are going to last the whole year, especially with the Indians being inconsistent as a whole. Being 9-0 pretty much puts you at the top of the list of really good pitchers in the league. And if you look at the AL, the pitching is fairly good, but it's not it's not great. The NL is where you kind of have to worry about winning the Cy Young with all those guys in there. 
So a Chicago pitcher leading the American League in pitching, also a Chicago pitcher from the Cubs leading the National League in pitching, Jake Arrieta, 8-0 with a 129 ERA. He's already thrown a no-hitter, the only pitcher who has thrown a no-hitter this year. Right behind him, Clayton Kershaw with another historic year, a 167 ERA. Gio Gonzalez right behind him in third, and Noah Syndergaard, who I predicted on our last show before our break to be contending for the Cy Young this year, in fourth, sporting a 194 ERA, and right behind him, a bit of a surprise out of the San Diego Padres organization, Drew Pomeranz with a 196 ERA. Yeah, I mean, that's a really tough list, too. I mean, you have a lot of guys with under two ERAs. Like, that, that is insane to think about. And even though it is a hitter's league, these guys are staying at the top. And if I look at that list, Arietta's been great, and I really like his stuff. But Kershaw is actually unhittable. Like, the, these, if you get a run off him, you are lucky. You call yourself lucky. And I love Noah Syndergaard and the velocity he brings, but he has trouble keeping runners on and not letting them steal all over him. So no matter what team you're a fan of, Clayton Kershaw is unhittable. He strikes out. He could strike out 20 any day. Scherzer did it once, but Kershaw could do it against a bad team. Kershaw could do it any, any day. Well, as far as the Cy Young goes, I think Kershaw definitely has to be the favorite anytime he gets off to a hot start like this. And you know he's going to continue playing well. Um, he's going to be really hard to beat. I think it very well may be a two-horse race between Jake Arrieta and Clayton Kershaw, similar to the way it was last year with Arietta and Greinke. Uh, I definitely think that there are guys like Noah Syndergaard and Gio Gonzalez who can contend, but even as you look down there in the 10s and 20s, you see guys like John Lester, Johnny Cueto, Garrett Cole, Steven Strasburg, Jeff Samarja, Vince Velasquez, Madison Bumgarner, uh, Max Scherzer, the list goes on. Even Kenta Maeda is having a great rookie season for the Dodgers. But while Kershaw and Arietta are obviously the front runners, I really think the guy that's going to give them a run for their money is Noah Syndergaard because I mentioned him preseason as the guy who I thought was going to win the Cy Young just because I think he clearly has the best stuff in the league. Close with Kershaw and Arietta, obviously, but I really think that a 95-mile-an-hour slider, and this guy throws over 100 miles an hour into the eighth inning, which really no other pitcher can say that. Early on in his career, he's really just struggled a little bit with his control and keeping runners on base, limiting steals and things like that. But the thing about Noah Syndergaard is I think he realizes these kinks in his game and he's trying to fix them because he's coming off a, a week where he was named National League Player of the Week and he went two straight starts where he went seven innings, didn't give up any runs, didn't give up any walks, and struck out ten in both starts. So he has that teachable personality where he knows what's wrong with his game and he knows how to fix it and he's trying to fix it. And a guy like that who really, at his best, features probably the best stuff in the major leagues, is definitely going to be in this race in September. But even with all these great pitchers in both the American League and the National League, it's still turning into a hitter's league, as you mentioned. Uh, teams are scoring runs at a record rate. Last year, the Blue Jays led the league in runs with 891, and this year, leading the league in runs is the Red Sox, and they're on pace to score just under 1,000 runs, which obviously is a huge jump from 891, and even the second, third, and fourth place teams in runs so far this year at this point are projected to score more runs than they did last year, which is pretty astounding. There's other guys that could compete for the, the Cy Young, but there's a major drop-off in the 3-4-5 spots uh, in a lot of rotations in the MLB. I'd say probably 20, I'd say about 20 out of the 30, uh, you know, you get a major, major drop-off after the third spot. There seem like the Nationals and the Mets that really have a solid rotation that doesn't falter near the end. But I think the major drop-off in talent at the end of a lot of these rotations is the reason why these guys are hitting. I mean, if the Aces are struggling and the 4-5 guys are struggling, then it, it just makes for a high ERA. Now, shifting more over to the hitting side, in the American League, you got some special things going on in Boston. Xander Bogarts leads the American League in batting average with 346, followed by Jackie Bradley Jr. at 342. Bogarts with a 17-game hitting streak, Jackie Bradley with a 27-game hitting streak, 
And fourth in the AL, David Ortiz, who usually just hits for power, is batting 329, and it seems like every other night he's one hit away from batting for the cycle. And that's really impressive for a 40-year-old David Ortiz. I mean, and I, I saw an interview with him saying, you know, if you're putting up these numbers, why would you why would you want to retire? And he says it's just the wear and tear on his body, but that whole team is hitting. Everyone on that team can hit the ball over the wall, in the gap, it doesn't matter. And that and that ballpark's pretty hitter-friendly. You have that short porch and right in, yeah, there's the green monster, but it's so tall that if you can just get it, if you can just get it off the top of that, it's an automatic double, even for David Ortiz. Even Hanley Ramirez, who had a tough season last year, has a 319 batting average. Travis Shaw with a 305 batting average. And that entire team is just hitting really well. But what about the defending World Series champions? The Kansas City Royals have had a down year so far. They're only one game above 500, third place in the American League Central. It's kind of been a tough year for them. Where have the Royals gone wrong? Yeah, it's been a major issue. And I thought they're. I thought their big issue would be pitching, you know, coming into the season because they lost Johnny Cueto and stuff like that. But it doesn't seem to be just that. I think it's overall a confidence issue. Like the the ballpark that they play in is definitely definitely a pitcher's ballpark to me. So it seems like it seems like it it seems like their lack of power starting to get to them and their contact just seems to be going to the outfielders or going to the infielders. You know, you could hit the ball all day, you can have solid contact with a high exit velocity, but if it goes right at the center fielder, then it means nothing. But if you're hitting it over the wall, then nobody can do anything about it. So it might be a little bit of bad luck mixed with bad confidence because they're not pitching so great either. So it, I mean, which one do you think it is? Do you think it's their hitting or it's their pitching that's really killing them? Well, while it could be a mixture of both, I feel like they're in one of the toughest divisions in baseball, and that could be what's really plaguing them. You have the White Sox, who they have the best record in the MLB, one of the best pitching staffs in the MLB. Chris Sale has been pretty much unbeatable, and even the hitters there. Todd Frazier leads the American League in home runs with 13, and even the Indians with their great pitching rotation, even though Corey Kluber hasn't been great. I feel like that tough division has really been what's holding back the Royals this year. Well, I think that brings up a good point, too, because I've got a question for you about a couple of these divisions because there's a lot of tough divisions in the league, and I know it's still early, but like in the AL East, you can't count any of these teams out. Like Even though the Blue Jays are six games out of first place, do you really think the Blue Jays have no chance at making a run for it? I mean, I think I think they're a great hitting team that's going to come alive at some point. So if you look at like the AL East, like who do you have winning it right now? Well, you were talking about confidence earlier, and right now the Blue Jays don't have any confidence. It seems like, especially with that big brawl where Rufinet Udor uh, got a really good sucker punch on Jose Batista. That was probably the best punch I've ever seen thrown oh, yeah. on a baseball field. It was fantastic. But um, if I had to pick one right now, it's going to be obviously the Red Sox, but it's I guess I shouldn't say obviously because the Orioles do lead the league in home runs, but the Red Sox lead the league in hitting, pure hitting. So right now, I think it comes down to those two teams. The Yankees, they've looked better since Aroldis Chapman has come back, but they haven't looked good enough, I don't think. And uh, the Orioles right now would be my team to beat just because their pitching has been better than we expected. And a team that can hit home runs, it can be really deadly at times. We saw that last year with the Blue Jays as they bulldoze through the playoffs. Sticking with the East Coast, what do you think about the NL East? And the Nationals and the Mets have kind of been going back and forth. The Nationals have had that, you know, very slim lead this whole time. And and even the Phillies are like a, definitely a surprise team that far over 500. I mean, the Phillies' record is better than the Royals, who won the World Series last year. So even though I don't think it's realistic for the Phillies to take this division, what's impressed you most about this division and who do you see taking it? Well, the Phillies obviously have gotten off to a fantastic start to their year, but I've said it before and I'm going to continue to say it. I really do not think they can sustain this only because uh, they have a lot of guys who weren't supposed to play well playing really well right now. Michael Franco and Odobo Herrera are the only real good hitting pieces I see on this team. They've got, they've got some pretty good pitchers in place with Vince Velasquez, Jared Eikhoff, and a couple others, but I really just think overall there's too much youth in this organization. Um, obviously, youth is a good thing. There's a bright future for the Phillies, but at the moment, as far as contending right now, especially with 
two of the best teams in the National League last year who are the Mets and the Nationals. I don't think the Phillies' time is now, maybe in two or three years. I think they've got a couple good cornerstones there, both in the infield and in the pitching rotation. But right now it's the Mets and the Nationals' time, and I really think that when it's all said and done, Whoever has the best pitching is going to win this division. So far, it's been the Nationals, and uh, that's why they're winning. Last year, it was the Mets, and ultimately, that's why the Mets won. But right now, the Mets, they have Matt Harvey not playing like himself, Jacob deGrom not really playing like himself, and you have, for the Nationals, Tanner Roark and Joe Ross not playing like themselves. And for the Nationals, that's a good thing. So at the moment, uh, the Nationals have better pitching, and that's why they've been uh, the better team so far this year. But as far as pure hitting, uh, the Mets, they lead the National League in home runs, so they've been really bad with runners in scoring position, however, so if they can improve on that number and continue to hit home runs, I think that even with the rotation as it is right now, not playing up to its potential, the Mets could still run away with this division, but for the Nationals, I really think that if they want to win this division, Bryce Harper is going to have to be a lot better. They got off to their, that incredible start to the season, really just because Bryce Harper was playing like his MVP self last year, but since he's cooled down... The Nationals uh, have been pretty much a sub-500 team, and it's really I think it's going to be a drag race between those two teams like it was last year, and when it's all said and done, I really do think that the Mets will come out on top. Based on what you just said, though, would you say would you say the Nationals and Mets are, are kind of stuck in the hardest division in the league? Because, I mean, record-wise, it looks like it, but would you say truly what these teams can play up to, including the Marlins? I mean, the Braves, the Braves are... We're not going to count the Braves because they have no chance in that division at all. Like They're in a rebuilding stage. But regardless, the the four teams, do you think the, the Mets and the Nationals are kind of, you know, like, what the heck? When did the division get kind of good when we're ready to, you know, it's, it's our time for the Nationals and the Mets? And do you think they're kind of stuck in the hardest one? I definitely wouldn't call it the best division in the National League. I mean, you have the Central and the West. And the reason those two divisions, everybody's record isn't so good is because all the teams are so good that there really hasn't been a consistent enough one to dominate that entire division. But for the Mets and the Nationals, and I guess you can throw the Phillies in there right now, it's kind of been bullying up on the Marlins and the Braves in that division. But I think once it's all said and done, the National League East is going to look similar to what it did last year in the fact that uh, the Mets and the Nationals are going to be way up front. The Braves are going to finish last. But I think what we're going to see this year more than anything for the National League East, not that it's the best division, but... I think we might see the Nationals and the Mets records depreciate just because, no, it's not the best division, but while the rest of those teams are improving, the Marlins and the Phillies are better teams than they were last year, so I don't think the Mets and the Nats are going to be able to beat up on them quite as much as they did last year. So the Mets may not win 90 games, and it might not be because they're not as good of a team as they were last year just because that division is better than it was last year. But just last night in the NBA, we had a very controversial game with a very controversial play. The Oklahoma City Thunder handed the Warriors their most convincing loss of the season, and it happened in Game 3 of the Conference Finals. But Draymond Green had the play that was turning everybody's heads. Green putting a move on Adams, and he is fouled. And down goes Adams once again. So Justin, when you saw that play, what was going through your mind exactly? Because... I wasn't watching the game live, and when I got this alert on my phone, I watched it immediately, and I, I got to think that he's got to be suspended. When I was first watching it, I thought nothing happened, and if, if anyone else was watching the game live, you probably didn't either, because when, when you see it from that angle, it just looked like he, like, you know, jumped back, or like he was stuck on Steven Adams, so he, like, moved, but when they turned the camera after that to show the replay, to show, like, what had happened, it, it was, it had so much intent behind it, and if anyone tries to tell me otherwise, you're lying. Draymond Green already had issues with Steven Adams because Steven Adams was talking about how uh, Draymond Green's uh, annoying. And Green responded uh, before the game yesterday saying how he doesn't try to get in Steven Adams' head. He only tries to get in KD and Russell Westbrook's head. So he's basically saying how Steven Adams isn't 
Steven Adams isn't a superstar, and I would agree with that. And but he kind of he kind of already had beef with Steven Adams. I don't know if if you already heard about that, Steven, but that made it even more for me. It made it even more sure that Draymond Green was going to get suspended, and he did it on purpose. And even though it looked intentional, there is a wide belief amongst the league that Draymond Green is not going to be suspended, especially since the Warriors are down in that series. If they take away Draymond Green, who is one of the biggest forces on that team, it's going to be pretty hard for the Warriors to win, especially when Steph Curry hasn't been dropping 40 or 50 a night like he's used to doing as the Thunder have been playing great defense. But hypothetically, if Draymond Green was to be suspended just for one game, do you think that the Warriors have any chance at winning that game? Well, I think it depends where it is. If it's if it's the next game in Oklahoma City, I think I think they're losing that game anyways, but I think it gives them no chance without Draymond Green. And if Steph Curry drops 50, I could easily see the Thunder still winning by 15. I mean, that's the kind of game I saw yesterday. I saw a game where it was not competitive from the start. OKC shot lights out. And we'll talk about it more later, but Steven and I kind of saw this coming. We, we saw... If OKC was at their best, they could match Golden State. And if Draymond Green is out while OKC is at home, it, you could see a 30 to 40 point, you know, blowout where the Thunder score 133 again in regulation. I mean, that, that only the Warriors can do that, it seems. And it's been really fun to watch this because the entire regular season, everybody's focusing on the Warriors and their 73 win season, and then the Spurs in their undefeated home streak. And then, real quietly, the Thunder have just been perfecting their craft and thinking about ways that they can beat Golden State and ways that they can beat San Antonio. And in the previous series, everyone was counting them out. Nonetheless, they beat the Spurs. And then this series, everyone was counting them out. Nonetheless, they're up 2-1 to one on the Warriors. Yeah, and I think people don't give OKC enough credit for the regular season because they should have beat, they should have beat Golden State twice more during the regular season, but they kind of got screwed out of both. I mean... Steph Curry's almost half-court three-pointer to end the game was kind of like a downer for them, and I thought they had won. I thought it was all over by then. All the games that were in the regular season were really close between the two of them, and I think this this was a possibility of it happening. I think people put the Warriors on a pedestal, and, and as they should, they're the best team of all time. But if you live and die by the three, and people think you can just live and die by the three, but when there's a team that can shoot mid-range better than you, if there's a team that has a bigger and better center than you, because Draymond Green is playing center half the time when Bogut's not in. So if OKC can match up against them in that way, they're going to win. They're a better mid-range shooter. They've been more consistent shooting from anywhere, and even the three-point line, Steph Curry's not on. If Steph Curry has a bad game, you're going to lose against the Thunder. For Golden State to have a chance... Steph Curry has to drop 35 and every single night at least and have a good night. It doesn't even have to be 35. He just has to have a really good game. Steven, do you, are you counting out uh, Golden State already, or do you think once they take it back home, they'll, they'll get a grip on the series? I definitely wouldn't count a team that won 73 games out ever. Even if they were down 3-0, I wouldn't count them out because the fact of the matter is they can literally catch fire. Golden State is like if you pour gasoline all over the place and drop a match. They can catch fire that quickly, and if they can do that in Game 3... I would probably count Oklahoma City out because when they have this much confidence right now and they're playing this well right now, they really need to start taking advantage of it. But you mentioned how great Draymond Green has been. He's a former second-round pick, but he's really vaulted himself into elite status this year. And for that reason, there's a wide belief amongst the league that he will not be suspended for this what was called a flagrant one foul. But there's also a lot of belief amongst uh, casual NBA fans that if it was somebody on their team, like per se, P.J. Tucker on the Suns or DeMarcus Cousins on the Kings, pretty much any other casual NBA player, they would have been suspended for multiple games and ejected, and it would have been more than a flagrant one foul. Do you think that elite players in this league have an advantage over other players when it comes to fouls like this one? Oh, I think 100% because, first of all, Joey Crawford, who recently retired as a referee from the NBA, 
was one of the worst refs I've ever seen of all time. I, I hated Absolutely. He was, it was one of the worst refs. I, I hated him. Every time he refed, I'm like, okay, my team's screwed. I, I don't know how he made it that I, far. So many years. So many, he, <laughs> I, I'll never forget when he... Uh, we, you and I watched a video, actually, I think. Uh, he ejected Tim Duncan for laughing on the bench. He was laughing on the bench, and Joey Crawford thought Tim Duncan was saying something to him. Instead, he was just laughing, and he threw Tim Duncan out of the game. And it's Tim Duncan, like the, the modest, you know, humble, quiet type of guy. He threw him out of the game. So it, he was he was a terrible ref. But back to the point, he, when he when he was refing when the Heat had LeBron, it was like every time LeBron went inside, it was a foul no matter what. If nobody touched him, he would flop. They would call it no matter what. I'll never forget the inf- infamous time where LeBron ran to Tyson Chandler and and he totally flopped in. And just so many times like I can remember. So I think LeBron specifically. There's so many times where right. I can remember either him flopping or even him not even getting touched, not even trying to flop, and a foul was still called. Right, and and like so that kind of gives brings brings it to the point where like superstars do get superstar treatment, and I think there's a case there's a case for that being okay, but it's also not because if you give superstars superstar treatment, then the people who aren't superstars won't be that won't be eventual superstars. I think this whole issue isn't more isn't really about if Draymond Green gets suspended or not, because if he doesn't, it's because the NBA wants to make money off people watching the game and maybe like a hundred less people are going to watch because Draymond Green's not playing. I mean, you, you, you're there to see Steph Curry, but I think the issue is more Draymond Green is a detriment to his team. He has an ego problem. He holds grudges. I mean, Steven Adams said one thing about how he was annoying and he, you know, had a, he had to kick him in a, in a spot no one wants to be kicked in. What I'm saying is that there's so many examples where, where Draymond Green has, has issues with grudges and he gets very angry and it, it's good because it's motivation, but if you ask Draymond Green to name every single player and what team they were drafted to ahead of him in the draft that he was drafted in, he could tell you every single player that was drafted in front of him in that draft. And that just seems like he's holding a grudge and it's, it's good motivation, but I don't want to know about it. Like, motivate yourself in your head. Don't don't tell yourself or don't tell the media the Trailblazers are done until they are. Like, I, it's just stuff like that. I, I kind of lose respect for him, you know? I think because of his personality, everybody knows it was intentional. Because when you think about the Warriors, everyone on that team, with the exception of Draymond Green, has been pretty quiet. He's kind of the the mouth of that team. He He's always talking a lot of trash. Even when they played the Trailblazers, he counted them out after they were down 3-1. to one. He's pretty much been the taunter of that team. He's always the guy that has feuds with other guys on teams that they're playing. And for that reason, I just think that Draymond Green, uh, you got to look at that play and think it was intentional. If you would have seen somebody else like that, more of a clean player, like somebody like Carmelo Anthony or Tim Duncan, then yes, maybe it might have been an accident because a guy like that, like Tim Duncan, he's not been known to do stuff like that in his career. But Draymond Green, that's that's kind of his reputation. He's known as that dirty player who talks a lot of trash. And he's this is not the first time we've seen him do something like this. So if you're even a casual NBA fan, you have to know that this wasn't intentional, but for the fact, like you said, about the ratings and everything else of that nature, he will not be suspended. I, I really, I would be shocked if he was suspended, especially in this scenario where they're down 2-1 to one in the series. Also down 2-1 to one in their respective series is the Raptors, and they finally got a win, their first conference finals win in franchise history on Saturday night. They beat the Cavaliers in Toronto, their first ever Eastern Conference Finals game at home, and it's been quite a ride for the Raptors because just when you think they're out, they get pulled right back in, and they'll play game four at home tonight. Down 2-1 to one in the series against LeBron and the Cavaliers. Everybody has been saying pretty much since day one that the Cavaliers will almost certainly be in the NBA Finals. And right now it still looks that way. But if the Raptors can translate some of this success from Game 3 into Game 4, then they might have a little bit of a fight on their hands. Well, I think so too. And, and you know, people don't talk about it because it's not as popular. And I think it's kind of the Eastern Conference Finals kind of a backstory because they, you know, they think... 
they think the Cavs are just taking it, which is, I mean, it's a reasonable opinion, but there's a couple of backstories going on here that I kind of want to talk about with you. Uh, we mentioned LeBron James and how he kind of gets the favorable calls, and uh, the Raptors coach, Dwayne Casey, he, he got fined $25,000 for complaining about the refs, and he kind of has a point, and I know it may be the, you know, the different styles of playing, but the Raptors got called for 73 personal fouls compared to the Cavaliers' 46 personal fouls in three games. I mean, that's a that's a high margin, and do you think that has something to do with them having LeBron and J.R. Smith and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love, those superstars on that team? Do you think they get the treatment? I absolutely think they do because, you know, obviously I don't have evidence of that, but as we were talking about with Draymond Green, any other player in the league, that's not a flagrant one. That's probably an ejection and a multiple-game suspension, and if LeBron would have done that, who knows if that would have even been a flagrant one. LeBron of everybody gets the Prince's treatment, and then when you add in guys like Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving and J.R. Smith, guys of that caliber— I don't think that, it's almost like refs are afraid to call fouls on guys like that, but when you have budding stars like Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, who are the biggest stars on that team and still not as big of stars as probably the top five players on the Cavaliers team, and it really makes you wonder, I would have to agree with Dwayne Casey on that one. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I'm def- they're definitely getting some sort of treatment. I, I, Like I said, I don't think that's fair in any way, but you can't take away bias out of that, and that's one of the major problems with basketball. But the Raptors took Game 3 in Toronto, and they, they played great defense. They held the Cavs to some 80-something points, right? And that's that's great. I mean, the Cavaliers can be a lights-out shooting team, but they kind of also live and die by the three, depending, because you have people like J.R. Smith and Kyrie who like to shoot the three. But do you think if Toronto takes Game 4 tonight, which I think is, I think it's very likely. I think I, I would pick Toronto to win this game tonight. Do you think that gives them a chance, or do you think since it's going to end up in Cleveland, they don't have a chance to take the series? I think it depends on how well they win this game four tonight. Because if they lose, I think it's pretty much over. Because you're not going to win three games in a row against LeBron James. Um, I don't have any stats on that either, but I would assume it's only been done probably one or two times throughout his entire career in the playoffs. But I think if they can win this game with authority by maybe 15, 20 20 or more points, then they can carry that, not only that momentum, but whatever game plan they had, obviously that would be working if they won by that many points. If they can carry that same game plan into Cleveland and win a game there, then I think they're the favorites because if they can go up in this series three to two and win two games in a row, then all of a sudden the Cavaliers look vulnerable. But obviously they played great defense. Bismack Biombo came down with 26 rebounds starting in place of Jonas Valanciunas. Obviously that was huge. What If there's one thing that the Raptors have to do to win this game tonight with their hometown fans on their side, what do you think it is? For them to win this game tonight, they have to play the defense that they played last time. Press LeBron. When he goes in the paint, you put your hands up. You don't. You do not foul him. Let him miss the layup because it seems like LeBron he had one of the worst three-point shooting percentages in the league uh, for part of the time last year, so he's not going to shoot too many jumpers. I mean, if he's feeling it, I'm sure he will, but more likely he'll drive on you and try to draw the foul, and that's where like the 70-some-odd 70, the 70 fouls come from as he drives, he drives, and he gets the call. You play tough defense on him but once he goes in the paint you just put your arms up it kind of depends on points in the paint will decide this game is what I'm basically trying to say is if it comes down to where the Raptors are getting outscored in the paint by 15 or 20 points they're going to lose this game but if they can keep it close and they can keep LeBron and Kyrie Kevin Love out of the paint and rebound the basketball that's what's going to take it's not so much about shooting if they put up 90 points I think they could still win this game but the same defense you played last time, the same rebounding, the same points in the paint. You do what you did last time because it worked for you, and you knew how to stop LeBron. And at home, that crowd, that crowd's crazy. I mean, they have one team in that in that country. They have just as many. They have even more fans that want to see that team. So, and I think Toronto's six and a half point underdogs in this game, but I think they're pretty much a safe bet for tonight because I don't I don't see them getting blown out. Do you? I don't really see them getting blown out, but. 
Now, we're recording this around noon on Monday. The game is at 8.30 Eastern. Um, I'm going to try and have this uploaded by the time the game starts, but let's do scores. If you had to pick a score for tonight, what would that be? All right, all right, here we go. So, uh, Steven, whoever's closer, we'll bet five bucks on this right now. So five whoever, bucks whoever's, on the table. <laughs> whoever's closer. So, I got I got Toronto 95 to 93. 95 to 93. I I think if Toronto wins, I feel like it's going to be by a, a wide margin just because I think they know what they got to do. They know that... As I said, if they if they want to win this series, they're going to have to win with authority and assert their dominance. So I think that if Toronto wins, it'll be by a score of 105 to 96. Ooh. So, I mean, so that's a nine-point margin. Yeah, you yeah. had a two-point margin. That's I mean, I just think it's going to be tough for the Raptors to score that many points. I mean, one, I guess you're right because, I mean, they did put up 99 points last time, which is, you know, only a six-point difference. I just think they're going to have a tough time scoring against the Cavs. They definitely will. Uh, yeah, they're like only an underrated— three-point ball is working really well. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I, I, and I also, I, I think the Cavaliers are an underrated defensive team because they usually play pretty decent defense, uh, not like San Antonio-type defense, but they usually go out there and, you know, they get their man, and Kevin Love sometimes doesn't play any defense. But for the most part, they go out there and put up a good fight. So I think this is going to be kind of a lower-scoring game. But if Toronto takes it tonight, which we seem to both think they will, and I guess a lot of other people don't, considering they're the underdog. But I mean, I guess we'll see if if I see Kyrie Irving and Jarrett Smith, you know, knocking down threes at a sixty percent rate to start the game, then they're they, absolutely right. going to win. Then they have no chance. The Raptors have no I, chance. I think after that. in order for the Raptors to win, they're going to need four perfect quarters, or at least if they're going to have one off quarter, one of their other quarters needs to be just fantastic. They're going to need to drop forty in a quarter if. If Cleveland leads after the first quarter, well, the, or something along those their, lines. Their off quarter can't be on their off quarter can't be on defense though. It can be on offense, but once you you leave them, you let them score. They, if they outscore you ten points in one quarter, you're doing to get blown out. Like that, that's it. And more than anything, I think they need to come out of the gate strong. They need to set the pace for this game. I think that's what they did in Game Three, and I think that's what they need to do again. The crowd noise needs to translate to their success on the floor. Drake and, will be there. You know, Drake will be there. Maybe he'll be shouting into the the opposing coach's ear, but. You heard it here first, $5 on the table on Eastern Conference <laughs> Finals Game 3, so watch that game. It's either going to be 105-96, 95-93, or neither. Maybe the Cavaliers will win, but we both right. think the Raptors are going to. That's going to be all today for Just Steven Sports. You know, as I mentioned, we had a couple months off. I think we did a pretty good job getting everything caught up. Tune in on Thursday for our next show. Thursday, we'll talk more NBA, more MLB, maybe even throw in some football. Thanks for tuning in today.